Well, for the last, uh, last few weeks, we have been working our way through the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and the process uh, we've come to understand that Jesus' public ministry uh, makes a, a major change at this point. Actually, it goes from a, from a very uh, wide open and proclamation, miracle-based ministry to something much more private, uh, much more transient. We called it a few weeks ago the, the ministry on the move and how for that final year of his life he moved about uh, the nation of Israel, even going outside of the nation of Israel at times in order to, to get alone with his disciples, to prepare them for the, his coming crucifixion, to avoid political, premature political in, uh, encounters with the authorities and so forth. And Matthew recounts for us in the 14th chapter two amazing miracles, of course, the feeding of the 5,000, and then Jesus walking on the water. But what Matthew does not uh, give us a record of is the rather extended sermon that Jesus preached uh, following his miracle of both the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. It's, it's called the Bread of Life uh, Sermon. And it is a sermon that was preached in the synagogue in Capernaum. And I've stood in the synagogue in Capernaum, and it's a, it's a good-sized building. And uh, it doesn't take a lot of sanctified imagination to see it filled with people as Jesus stood there and preached this very powerful sermon. A sermon that uh, kind of officially marks the end of his popularity with the crowds. By the time he finishes this Bread of Life sermon preached there in the synagogue at Capernaum, there will be very few left to follow him. They will turn away, the crowds will disappear, they will melt away, and the ministry on the move will begin. The sermon really provides for, for the people there on the north shores of the Sea of Galilee kind of one final opportunity to repent and to humble their proud hearts, to, to turn to the Messiah of Israel and faith and call out on him to save them from their sin. And yet, when he comes to the end of that sermon, instead of repenting and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, they reject him, they refuse him, they walk away from him and to their everlasting perdition. Open up to John chapter 6 this morning where that sermon is found. And I want to read a good bit of chapter 6. It's a long chapter, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to begin the reading at verse 22, and I want to read John's account of this sermon to you. So John chapter 6, we are still in our exposition of Matthew's gospel. This is one of those sanctified detours. And uh, just to help fill in uh, a little bit of the picture for us. And so we are, in, we are in Matthew's gospel, but this morning we're in John's gospel. So we're in John 6 and beginning in verse 22. John writes, The next day the crowd stood on the other side of the sea and saw that there was no other small boat there except one. And that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away. They didn't know that he had walked across the water, right? 
There came other small boats from Tiberias, which would have been on the western shore, near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks, that is, the feeding of the 5,000. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that everyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This section of John's gospel, this extended treatment, is a narration really of a sifting process. A sifting process. The process by which the true disciples, the true followers of Jesus, were separated from the false. This is a rather lengthy section, but, it, but it's not an account of, of what happened with Jesus' enemies. It's an account of what happened with those who were his professed followers and friends. It's an account that relates not to, to those that are outside the church, but to those who are inside the church. It's an account not for those who are widely acknowledged to be unbelievers, but it's those who are subtly and secretly make-believers. This is a sifting sermon. Can we learn something from this sermon? Can we learn something from the response of those who were collected there that day in the synagogue at Capernaum? Something that can profit you and I this morning. And the answer is absolutely. Yes, we can. The last a few days, the end of last week, 
I and a number of the men here from uh, Foothill were privileged to be at the Shepherds Conference over at Grace Community Church, and it was a wonderful time over there. It was an exhausting time, but it was a wonderful time. And during, uh, during my time there, I had opportunity to, uh, to meet a number of my old classmates from seminary and to run into other people that I knew and to be introduced to, to friends of friends and that sort of thing. And so I had many, many conversations. And it did my heart really good because a number of the conversations were uh, devoted to the topic of church planting. And I was very encouraged by all of that because uh, church planting is, is absolutely alive and well among those who hold to the inerrancy of the Word of God. There are many, many men who are seeking to plant Bible-teaching churches all over this globe, domestically and internationally, and a number of them were there. And it was really encouraging to talk with them. You know, we, by the grace of God, are committed to church planting. By God's grace, we've been enabled to plant two churches domestically and participate in the planting of numerous other churches internationally. And it's a, it, it's a good work to be involved in. It's, it's a God-blessed, God-ordained work. But it's not an easy work. It's not an easy work. It's a hard work. And it's a work that is fraught with danger, many dangers, and not the least of which is, is the subtle temptation to substitute the, the effort of man for the work of the Spirit, the work of God. In trying to, to gather together people, it is very, very tempting to compromise the Word of God. And so this, this message this morning is... From, from the Bread of Life sermon here, I think is so important because it really speaks to that issue. And in fact, is we're, going to, we're not going to look at the whole uh, sermon, so uh, rest assured, you're okay. Uh, we're just going to look at a few verses. Actually, we're going to look at it beginning in verse 60 and running through verse 66. So we're only going to be looking at six or seven verses here. And actually what we're going to look at is kind of the result of the sermon. I wanted to read the whole sermon to you because it's, it just provides that important context for the result that we're going to look at. And you know, the lessons that are, that are here for us are important lessons. In fact, there are, there are three of them. I believe there are three vital lessons that we can, we can see here regarding church planting. But it's, but it's not just church planting. It, it relates to an established church as well. The same temptations present themselves to established churches as they do to church planting. So it's profitable for us to know this, that we might, by the Spirit of God, be protected from these same temptations. So here they are. Here are the lessons. The first one is in verses 60 to 62, and it is this, that spiritual truth offends. That's the first important lesson for us to to hang on to here, and that is that spiritual truth offends. Verse 60, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? A difficult statement, a hard statement, not hard to understand, hard to accept. 
It is a statement that is, that is not hard for them to understand. It's not like they misunderstood this sermon. They, they understood perfectly well what he was talking about. Their problem came in the implications of what it was that he was talking about. And these implications had, been not, had not been lost on them. Not at all. We should not uh, take a superficial reading of this and, and think that somehow that they thought he was speaking about cannibalism. And therefore they were offended by it and turned off. We should, uh, we should not assume they were so foolish. They knew that he was not speaking about cannibalism. When he, when he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, they knew he was not talking about cannibalism. Nor was he talking about physical bread. He was, he was speaking metaphorically, and they were, they were able to pierce the metaphor and understand what he was talking about. And what he was talking about, what he was calling for, was a wholehearted commitment to him. To him as the very Son of God, the one who brings life to the dead. You can see it. For example, in verse 39 where he says at the end, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He was claiming authority at the judgment in the last day that he would be the one to give life. They understand perfectly well what he was talking about, perfectly well. They also understood the, the, the implications of the demands for discipleship that are implicit in the metaphor of eating his flesh and, and drinking his blood. They understood that he was calling for, for much more than an intellectual commitment. He was demanding that they, that they throw themselves upon him in faith, that they, that they give themselves to him wholeheartedly. That they view him as the Son of God, co-equal with the Father. Or they must view him as a blasphemer. They must view him as a blasphemer. He left them no middle ground. That's why this sermon is, is so important. He strips away all middle ground. You either throw yourself upon me, you give yourself fully to me, for I am the one who controls eternal life, or you reject me as a blasphemer and turn away. No more following. Now, I think it's probably important for us to take a moment here and, and uh, clarify the word disciple. Because the, the word uh, appears all through this section here, and, and unless we do that, unless we clarify the word disciple, we could walk away with some really bizarre and unbiblical understanding of what is going on here. So let's do that. The word disciple. You probably have heard this, but it won't hurt you to hear it again. The word disciple in its very basic and essence means a learner. A learner. That's what it means to be a disciple. The word does not always designate a true believer. 
John chapter 2, we won't turn there, but John chapter 2, verses 23, 25, it says there that Jesus knows what's in people's hearts. Not all who follow him are truly committed to him. The disciples' initial attraction to Jesus, unless it becomes a settled faith in him as the Son of God, the one who gives eternal life, then they will eventually lose interest in him. They will eventually turn away from him. And in fact, that's exactly what the parable of the soils in Matthew 13 is all about, right? The word lands on the soil and, and it receives an immediate response from several of the soils, yet it is not an enduring response. It is not a, it is not a believing response. It is not a true response. And, it fall, and they, the seed perishes and, by extension, those followers, those disciples fall away. Now, it's interesting here to me that... Uh, Jesus, it says, verse 61, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this uh, cause you to stumble? Now, here's the picture. The, the synagogue, I told you, I've been there. The synagogue, it's a good-sized building, and it's, it's packed. Okay? How do I know it's packed? Well, I know it's packed because uh, John sort of indicates that the crowds are, are chasing after him, right? And, and we need to remember that the day prior, he, uh, he stood on the mountainside on the east side of the lake, and, and he took the little boy's lunch, right? And, and he fed up to 20,000 people. And so the crowds are after him, and, and they're going to pack into that synagogue, and that's exactly what they do. They pack into the synagogue to hear him, and as he gives them this uh, sermon, they begin to grumble, now, how he knows they're grumbling, not sure. I mean, maybe, maybe in his omniscience as the Son of God, he, he just can detect what they're thinking. And that's possible, but it's, uh, it's, it's equally likely that he merely reads their body language. That he just sort of looks out over the crowd and, and uh, you know, you should see the, the view that I have on Sunday mornings up here. And uh, I can read some of your minds. Okay, and uh, you know you can just see people's face. You can see the scowls, and and you can see them turn and whisper to each other, and you know what, what's that guy talking about? And and so it may have been simply that we don't really know. But he puts his he puts his finger right on it, doesn't he? He says, um, "Does this cause you to to stumble? To stumble? It's um." comes from the word scandalon. You maybe have heard that. Does this scandalize you? It's a, it's a Greek word that uh, refers to the bait stick used in a, in a snare or a trap. And um, it, it, it comes to us with the understanding of something that causes you to be offended to the place of falling away. Okay, So not merely annoyed. He's not saying, does this annoy you? It's uh, more like, is... is why is it that you have come to the place here where you're going to turn away from me? Does this cause you to be offended, to cause you to stumble? Now, it's not the hardness, and I think we should point this out, it's not the, it's not the hardness of the sermon here that's, that's causing this as, as much as it is as the hardness of the hearts of those who are hearing the sermon. The unfavorable reaction he is receiving is, is not because of what he is saying. It's because of the implications of what he is saying upon their own hard hearts. 
But specifically, what is it that they're objecting to? As they, as they hear this sermon and the scowls begin to grow on their faces and the, perhaps the whispers side to side uh, about this, what is it specifically? What is the reference to the, to the eating and drinking that he's talking about? Well, the answer here is that they, that they are displeased with this sermon from beginning to end. Okay, this is not a sermon that uh, starts out well and ends poorly. I've had a few of those. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a sermon, they don't like it from the moment it starts. You know, they're, they're rolling the title page, if this were a video, and already the people are, are registering their disapproval. They, they seem to object here, I think, in, uh, in basically five areas. I'll just point them out to you quickly. Uh, they, they object to the fact that he has rejected their politics. And that occurred actually the night before in verse 15. They're perceiving, he's perceiving that they want to make him king by force, right? And he dismisses the crowd. He rejects that, that complete approach. So he doesn't like their politics, and, and he has rejected their politics, and that doesn't make him very happy. Beyond that, uh, he has demanded their, their personal and unqualified faith. In verse 27, where he says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you, you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He is, he is demanding of them their personal and unqualified faith in him as the very Son of God, and they don't like that. Beyond that, he is, uh, he is claiming that, that he himself is the atonement for the world and not just the Jewish people. And they're not too happy about that. So in verse 33, he says, The bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 55, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. So he is saying that he is the atonement but not just for the Jewish people alone, but for the world. And the world sweeps in the Gentiles, and the Jews and the Gentiles uh, definitely don't get along. So to, to, for him to, to talk about the, the, the spiritual life being extended to the Gentiles is very offensive to them. Fourth, he claims equality with God, as we said earlier, by virtue of his power to give life to the dead. He says, I control life everlasting, life to the dead, and they're definitely not happy with that. And then finally, he, he stresses uh, human inability, human inability and divine sovereignty in salvation. And that one always goes over well. So all that the Father, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So this is, this is God's personal sovereign election of sinners unto redemption. And the proud human heart hates that doctrine. 
So for, for all of these reasons, this sermon is, is absolutely offensive to them. Absolutely offensive. They hate it from its beginning to its end. And they're showing it on their faces. Now, I'm not a very brave guy. And so if I were preaching in that environment where it was obvious that the, the, you know, the eye daggers are, are starting to come my way, I would be very much tempted to sort of back off, right? Maybe I'd, you know, warning, 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 Will Robinson, you know? It's um, maybe time to ratchet down the, the, the rhetoric a little bit, reduce the demands. You know, let's, let's play nice. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do it at all. In fact, what he does in the face of, of their rejection of him is to up the ante. Let's, let's really make sure that by the time I'm done, you're either in or you're out. Okay, you're in or you're out. And so that's exactly what he does in verse 62 is he ups the ante. All right, he says, uh, does this cause you to stumble? That is all the things that you've just heard. Well, let me add one more. Well, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, the mention of the ascension here is, is wrapped in all that's involved in the incarnation, right? Where, where God sent his only begotten Son into space and time. Where he took to himself human flesh and, and, and lived among us. It will ultimately include his, his uh, crucifixion and his resurrection, but it, but it ends in his ascension, that is, his return back to the right hand of the Father. And what he is saying to them here is, is that this event, which, which will ultimately result, or will be his greatest um, shame, and, but will result in his greatest glory, what are you going to do about that? If the things that I'm saying to you now bother you, what are you going to do when I go back to glory from which I've come? And the path by which I will go back to glory. If the language now is, is difficult for you, what are you going to do with the final event? Now verse 62, it's, a, it's an incomplete sentence. It, it requires the, the listener to fill in. The what then, do you see that? Well, what then, if you see the Son of Man, the, the what then is probably short for something like, what will you say then? Maybe the conversation could, we could say it went something like this. If you cannot handle my statements and demands regarding what it means to follow me, then what in the world will you think of a crucified, resurrected, and ascended Messiah? What will you do with that? And we know exactly what. They will do with that because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, he says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, same word, scandalon, a stumbling block into the Gentiles' foolishness. If you cannot handle what I have said so far, what in the world are you going to do with a crucified, resurrected, and ascended Messiah? This is tough stuff. This is tough stuff. Beloved, spiritual truth offends. Spiritual truth offends. And, and that's one of the reasons why church planting is so difficult. So difficult. is because when you enter into an area to begin to plant a church, you bring a message that for the majority of the world is, a, is an absolutely repulsive message. 
but only those in whom God through his Holy Spirit has worked to draw them unto the Father will receive the message in faith and the church will be born. But the problem is, is that people don't go around with an E on their forehead, right? There's no way to know. And so we must, in faith, preach this offensive message over and over and over again and trust the results to God. So the first lesson is that spiritual truth offends. Second is that salvation comes entirely from God. Salvation comes entirely from God. Verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Unless a person comes to follow Jesus Christ because of the work of the Spirit of God in their heart, then their following him is superficial. It is of the flesh. It is merely human enthusiasm. And it, and it will not last, and it, and it does not bring the new life that only the Spirit of God can bring. And it's very, very difficult early on to, to try to figure out whether people have been regenerated by the Spirit of God or whether they're just merely following the parade. And the more we, we water down the message, the more we confuse the message with human effort, the more difficult we make it to try to figure out who's really here and why are they here. It is the Spirit of God who brings about the new birth. The flesh profits nothing, he says, verse 63. Very, very emphatic in the Greek. He uses a double negative here to, to make sure that you do not miss this. The flesh doesn't profit a little. The flesh profits nothing. The natural man is incapable of under, either understanding or believing the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Incapable. Paul says it this way, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. It requires the work of the Spirit of God. What that means then is, is that all fleshly activities, all, all human activities come to nothing when it when it with regard to regenerating the heart of a dead sinner. They come to nothing. A logical argumentation falls flat. You can, you can get into a debate or a discussion with an unbelieving person, and you can best them at argument. And by the way, it's really not all that hard to do because their wisdom is built on sinking sand. And so it's not all that hard to, to best them in argument, but it, it will do nothing. It will not move them towards Jesus Christ, not even one iota, not at all. Emotional appeals do not regenerate dead human hearts. You can get people to do things. You can move their emotions. You, you can play on their emotions, but you cannot regenerate their heart. It profits nothing. Stirring music will do nothing but stir the emotions. Powerfully so. But it will not regenerate the human heart. Beautiful buildings do not regenerate the human heart. They do not create 
true followers of Jesus Christ. And here's one. Neither do miraculous signs. Neither do miraculous signs. All the signs and wonders will do nothing to regenerate the human heart. How do I know that's true? Because I've been reading the Gospels over and over again, and Jesus has been doing nothing. I shouldn't say that. Jesus has done many, many miracles and signs, right? And it has produced nothing. Prior to this sermon, he just fed up to 20,000 people with a few tortillas and a couple of sardines. And at the end of the sermon, they all walk away. In fact, earlier they say, what miracle or sign do you do to show us who you are? Jesus, by the way, has remarkable self-control, I think. Right? I mean, how tempted would you be to say, like, what? But he doesn't. Signs and wonders will do nothing. Nothing to regenerate the dead human heart. They do not produce faith. So where does faith come from? Where does the, where does the regenerating work come from? How does spiritual life come? Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Where does the spiritual birth come from? It comes by the work of the Spirit of God who, who, who uses the Word of God, the words of Jesus, to bring about spiritual life. Paul says it this way in Romans 10 and verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. How are, regener how, are, how are our dead sinners regenerated? They are regenerated through the preaching of the gospel as the Spirit takes His Word and makes it effectual in the human heart. It is the Word of God that brings about justification. It is the Word of God that brings about sanctification. It is the work of the Spirit. It is the work of the Spirit. Salvation comes from God. James chapter 1, verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. How? By the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruit among his creatures. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again. How? Not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. It is only the word of God. That brings life. That is true for them, and that is true in our day as well. So, what does that mean? It means we need to preach the scriptures, right? We need to exposit the scriptures. We need to teach the scriptures. And we need to pray that the Spirit of God would take His Word and, and make it active and effectual in the lives of people. We preach and we pray. On a simple strategy for growing a church, it is simply this. You preach and you pray. And you preach and you pray. And that's how it works. And that's exactly how 
Jesus did it. He goes on, he says, there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Isn't this interesting? There is, there is this life-giving quality for, of Jesus' words, and, and yet many reject them. Ample opportunity to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and those, they were following him. And yet he knows from the beginning that the majority, for the majority of these people, they are following him for selfish reasons that have nothing to do with a heart that has been regenerated and drawn to God. By the way, this general statement is made specific here at the end of the chapter in the life of Judas Iscariot, right? You want to see somebody who had witnessed miracles? How about somebody who had performed miracles? How about someone who had had the gospel on their own lips, preaching it to others? And yet in the end, he is the son of perdition. From the beginning, he says, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. Maybe the beginning of his ministry. Maybe from the beginning of time, right? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and following, that that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. It may be a reference to to the beginning of his public ministry. It may be a reference to the fact that back in the secret counsel of God, he chose out of a pool of sinners whom he would rescue and whom he would pass over. Jesus says, verse 65, For this reason I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. For this reason. What reason? Because of the unbelief that has emerged here. Because of the fact that after 18 months of being among them and attracting massive crowds, that they are all going to abandon him. They are going to fall away. They are going to reject him. They are going to turn their back on him. What explains all of that? Simply this. No one can come to me unless it has been granted of them by the Father. Faith is a gift of God. It is the gift of God. It comes from a sovereign creator. It is not the product of human endeavor. Beloved, true commitment to Christ is impossible. Absolutely impossible for a selfish and dead heart. It can only come as, as, the, as God regenerates the human heart through the work of his spirit in reliance upon his word. The initiative is traced to God. Spiritual truth is offensive. Salvation comes entirely from God. Third and final lesson. Numbers can be deceiving. Hmm? Numbers can be deceiving. Verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. As a result of this, as a result of what? As a result of this sermon. As a result of this sermon. 
and his follow-up to it in verses 61 to, to 65, the crowds melt away. The crowds melt. The Galilean campaign collapses. It collapses. The crowds have been, have been chasing him all over. We're going to see when we get back to Matthew Next week, we're going to see that there are still, he, he still has the ability to gather a crowd. They'll, they'll come to him for what they can get from him. And, and he is so gracious, he will, he will continue to heal people. In fact, we'll see next week that, that if they can just get close enough to touch his robe, he will heal them. But the spiritual endeavor is over. The crowds have collapsed. The numbers are gone. The followers have melted away. And it's Jesus' own words that cause it. Isn't that interesting? It is Jesus' sermon here that, that crystallizes people into two groups. His followers, he, he, he pushes them into one or of two groups. I'm waiting for somebody to write a book on church planting strategy that... Uh, talks about doing this. I don't think it would sell very many copies. But he drives people. He drives them in one of two directions. Either follow me for eternal life or I will push you away. I'll push you away. You find my teaching intolerable, you'll abandon me. As a result of this, many of his disciples, take a look at that verse. It's got to be most, one of the most discouraging verses, at least on the surface, right? In the New Testament. As a result of his sermon, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Can you imagine that? I'll let you know on a secret. Preachers live and die with attendance, Okay? You, um, you preach here on a Sunday, and then, and then the next week when you come back and like a third of the people missing, you die. And, and, you, and you say to yourself, what did I say? Why, 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 where is everybody? What, what did I do? That's how preachers are. They, uh, they really struggle with the ups and downs. And yet Jesus, right, he preaches a sermon that, that is designed to empty the pews, as it were. Designed it. They're not walking him, with him anymore. They abandoned him. They, re, they returned to their old way of life. They're like a dog returning to its vomit. They turn from him. His popularity is over. The ministry, the mission has collapsed. He's made it clear and obvious now he is not going to allow himself to be bent to their proud and sinful wishes, right? He's not going to let them make him king. In fact, just the opposite. They must humble themselves. They must admit their need. They must must fall at his feet. They They must call out to him to save their souls. They must be like the man in Luke 18 and verse 14 who calls out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus is still calling today to people to do the same thing. 
today, even here, right now. Jesus would say to you, you must, you must turn from your sin. You must flee to me. There is no other hope you have. Death and judgment is is coming. And Jesus says, I hold the keys. I am the one who unlocks the door to eternal life. No one else. He'll say later in John's Gospel in 14, John chapter 14, he'll say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. He alone controls access to eternal life. And he, and he dispenses it on his terms. And so he calls upon you this morning to turn from your sin. And to throw yourself entirely and completely at his feet. To call out to him to save you. Trusting in his death and burial and resurrection. To satisfy the just penalty of your sin. To restore the broken relationship between you and your creator. Our Father God. But here's the thing. You can't do it on your own. You can't just sit here and do it. It's not a bargain you make with God. He's calling you to do what you cannot do. So throw yourself onto his mercy and beg God to save your soul. Beg him to save your soul. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Beloved, all the glitters is not gold. Large crowds, popularity, it means nothing. In the end, in the eternal scheme of things, it means nothing. Only the Spirit of God, working to regenerate dead sinful hearts that's all that matters you preach a gospel like this and you'll thin the crowds you'll empty the pews we are so proud and arrogant as a people to admit that we can play no part in our salvation Nothing is more offensive to the human heart than that. And yet salvation is of the Lord. It's of the Lord. If you are refusing Christ this morning, it's not because you're having intellectual difficulty with him. It's not because you don't understand who he is. It's not because you don't understand what he wants. In fact, it's just the opposite. You know exactly who he is and you know exactly what he wants. And you want no part of it. But if God has moved in your heart this morning, call out to Christ. Beg him to save you. I pray that he will. Our Father, this message in John 6 is a hard, hard message. 
Because it strips away the veneer of, of religious respectability. It strips away the, the lies and the falsehood that we're basically good and, and we just need to be nudged over the finish line. It strips away the human pride that says, I'm, I'm really not that bad. Sick, perhaps, but not dead. And yet, the, your verdict is just the opposite. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins, enslaved to the prince of the power of the air, in need of rescue, and yet unable to do anything to rescue ourselves. Even unable to call out to Jesus unless you work first. Father, I beg you, on behalf of those who are here, in the hearing of my voice, who do not know Jesus, that you would save their souls. Our Father, it is their only hope. It is their only hope. Please, in your mercy and grace, open their eyes. Unstop their ears. Remove their stony heart and, and replace it with a heart of flesh. That they might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And for those of us, Father, who do know you, the battle doesn't end. Unbelief lies close at hand. It is our constant adversary. We forget the gospel and we doubt its power. Oh Lord, we throw ourselves on your mercy. May you renew us in faith for Jesus' sake. Amen. Go in peace, beloved, and take the message of the gospel to a world that desperately needs to hear it.